0: The lesson tonight be really looking at the final lesson of what really wasn't planned as a series of lessons, but it turned out that way nonetheless. Uh, looking at the transmission of the Bible, and we're not talking about a car part, we're talking about how the Bible was, uh, how we ended up the Bible like we have it uh, today. And much of what we've talked about already has been a very much a highlight because there's a lot of detail you can go into when you talk about these types of things, about how you got the Bible. In fact, there have been volumes of books written about it to go into various links and various aspects regarding uh, this topic. And so I no way intend to cover everything that could be covered or discuss everything that could be uh, discussed. But I did want to go ahead and wrap this up this evening looking at the transmission of the Bible. And I want to show if we can learn from the way the Bible message was given to man. You think about some things sometimes, and this kind of helps us think about some things maybe we haven't considered before, like why were certain languages used in Bible recordings over others? Why did God choose to use certain languages more than others? Why were certain languages more prevalent uh, and, and we think about only, uh, languages, but also how we can know that what we have today is indeed genuine and authentic. And, and how we can know the message we have today is indeed, uh, from God and not one simply derived from man. And so we want to begin first by looking at the languages of the Bible. Now, there are what we call major languages and there are what we call minor languages, but I'm going to focus more on the major languages this evening looking at just three of them. You probably know what they are, some of you, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, of course, uh, being the New Testament language. And uh, there are some others who reference minor languages we find uh, where the Bible was translated using some other languages. Um, uh, But the main we have here that we have recorded for us are uh, these main three are going to look at this evening, beginning first with, uh, Aramaic. This language was the local language of the land of Palestine and much of Syria where Jesus and the apostles lived and did a lot of work, meaning it was a language that they were familiar with, a language that people knew, uh, and were accustomed to. You know, you think about that, we may think, well, what's the big deal? Well, today, when you go overseas, are, are you always going to be able to understand everything that people say to you? No. And how would you preserve, if you were to write a book today, pick a language that could be uh, preserved, uh, that uh, allow others to read it more easily in the future, we, we automatically, think because you live in America, we probably say English. But in reality, probably the most spoken language around the world is not English, but actually probably Spanish. And it's one of the fastest growing languages. But we think about why God chose, or why this is one of the languages that we're, we find the Bible recorded in, specifically the Old Testament, is because it was a very much a local language and also a very common one. And we know this, when we think about Aramaic, we think about the Old Testament. Uh, but we also think about, when we think about the Old Testament languages that are used, we also have to consider uh, the Hebrew language as well. And the Hebrew language is, is kind of, I kind of found two points here for us to think about when we think about the Hebrew language. And the first is that the Hebrew language is a pictorial language, speaking with vivid and bold descriptions. There's a lot of, must say, detail and things to help us picture in our mind what is taking place. Not that other languages do not do that, but the Hebrew seems to be one that stands out uh, quite a bit. This is also a what some would call a personal language. It addresses itself to the heart and emotions, not just to the mind and reason. And when I say that, I don't mean that it's just a purely emotional language, but because of the style of writing, it does cause one to uh, it does appeal to some some of our emotions, not just to again to the mind and to reason. And so, it's a very unique language in of itself. In fact, Hebrews or the Hebrew language. Sometimes even as we find in Malachi chapter 1, uh, verses 2 and 3, if you look there, you'll find that even sometimes nations are given personalities. You remember, uh, God is pictured as speaking to an entire nation, as if speaking to them at once, and their response as, as one. And so that helps us understand who God is speaking to, that entire group. And so uh, it, it's a very interesting language, and no doubt you go into a lot more detail about uh, Hebrew, but one of the things about the, the, the languages of the Bible is that words have very significant meanings. You know, when you talk about doing a word study, uh, you can go into a lot of detail if you wanted to, almost on any word, really. And we often talk about baptism, and how much you can go into looking at its, its usage, and when it's used, where it's used, uh, how it's applied, its context, those types of things. And, and Hebrew is no different. What's interesting about Hebrew and Aramaic language is, is when you think about those word studies, there's nothing about always those names that we find in the Old Testament that have such powerful meanings behind them. And so, not that we can't find that in the Greek as well, but language is, is very important. And no doubt, Hebrew is, is pictured by many as a, a pictorial language and a very personal language as well. And I wonder probably, if we're going to be familiar with one more than one over more than the others. It's probably gonna be the Greek language, or what we call the Koinate Greek. This is not common Greek today. If you were to talk to someone today who spoke common Greek, their meanings would mean their their word meanings would be a lot different uh, for the most part than what we find when we look at the Koinate Greek. Uh, this is the Koinate Greek has been called by some as a intellectual language. It was more of a language of the mind and of the heart. It is more suited to putting God's message in in some would say in an easily understood form that can be passed on to man. What's interesting about the Koine Greek language is that it is uh, one uh, that is what we call a dead language. When you say a dead language, you mean that it it does not change anymore. If a language is a a living language, so to speak, word meanings can change, right? I mean, think about how the definitions of words in English language have changed over time. Well, it changed quite a bit, right? I mean, gay used to mean happy, didn't it? And so that's just one example. Definitions of words have changed when it's a living language, so to speak, but a dead language means those word meanings haven't changed. And so when they record, when we have that those words recorded in the Koine Greek, and we see what those things meant in the Koine Greek, we can say, that hasn't changed. The word they used and definition that, that fit it during that time still fits today, which is encouraging to you know because we can know exactly what was said and the meaning behind it. So having a, a, a dead language, so to speak, that doesn't change it is helpful for us today. It's not uh, something that's going to uh, hinder us in any way. It was also, Greek was also a almost completely or or nearly a universal language. This language was appropriate for the spread of the message in the New Testament age due to the fact that it was widely spoken throughout the world. It means most of the people understood it. You know, even going over, I think about when we went to Majuro, or Maduro, and even though some people didn't speak English themselves when you spoke English, most of them could still understand you. And they might reply in broken English or in, or in um, Marshallese as their language was there, uh, but they could still understand what you were saying. And I think about the Greek language, though, know, even though maybe not the Koine Greek, even though there may have been those who didn't it, weren't able to speak it, but there are many who could still understand it. Think about it. you ever been at a Mexican restaurant and and maybe the, the waiter comes up and they say something It's in Spanish because, you know, of course, most of them can speak at least some English. But they say something and you pick up on what it is they're saying. Now, does that mean you know every single word in Spanish? Well, no, but you can still pick up on things. Well, the Koine Greek was nearly a universal language, and so it could be easily understood and to uh, allow a larger group of people, so to speak, to be able to uh, hear and understand those things. And so the selection if we want to use that idea, of uh, Bible languages is incredible because it is designed for us, as we find, it is done in such a way, I think in courts to God's will, that we can understand, if we so desire fully, the message that God wants us to have today. We can go back and we can dig very deep if we wanted to and do word studies, whether it be Old Testament or New Testament, and find meanings of words. And so we can still know exactly what was behind those words because of the languages that were used. Now, again, there are other languages that are mentioned in various books, uh, but we want, I just want to look at those three this evening. The next thing I want us to consider is what is called the process of transmission. The process of transmission. It is the steps that were taken so that the so that God's word was, uh, passed down to us, and we know that it was authentic, that we don't have things included in there that are not part of God's Word. And when we do that, we talk about such things as as genuineness and authenticity, and distinguishing between those two things. Now, genuineness refers to the truth of the origin of a document. It's authorship. So we think about the Bible, we think about a certain book of the Bible. Many times you're reading a commentary, one of the first things that they'll address, if it's a very good commentary, is the author. How we know who wrote it, uh, other supporting things that show who wrote that book of the Bible, when it was written, where it was written even, the occasion, the context, those types of things. And the reason those things are brought out is to show you that this is a genuine book that deserves to be considered for us today. And so we want we want the truth, we want to be able to say yes, we know this is part of God's Word. It is genuine, it is, uh, this author is indeed someone who was uh, inspired of God or, re- or recording the inspired words of God. Uh, and not too separate from that is authenticity. This refers to the truth of the facts and content of the documents of the Bible. So genuineness confirms, looks more at the author, whereas authenticity looks more at the content of those things they're in. I remember a couple of weeks ago I was listening to different podcasts that we do there on Bible Way Media. And I try to listen to as many of them as I can, but there's a lot of them. They come out every week. And I was listening to part of Don Boyd's that he did and his program is an hour long. But I was listening to one of his and he was talking about books of the Bible. And he's talking about some of the same things we we're talking about tonight in the last few weeks. Looking at how we can know the books we have or the books we should have. And he quoted as I've mentioned before, I believe, one of the books that some people want to argue belongs in the Bible. And he talked about a so-called fishing story that's in this, one of these books that had no ring of truth whatsoever. And when I say that, if you were to sit down and pick out any book of the New Testament because this one involved Christ, and compared to this, this writing he's referring to, and he wasn't in support of it, just to be clear. He was making a stark contrast you can see very clearly about this one section that here's what the Bible says in, to, in reference to Christ and His ministry and His time on the earth. And here's this other writing and it sounds completely out of sorts. You know, you ever, you ever hear someone say, well, that just doesn't sound like something they'd say. That's what I think about with those types of things. It just doesn't sound like Christ. It doesn't sound like an apostle that goes into detail about something such as, you know, pools of water where they were fishing and things such as that. You know, you think about, for instance, the occasion where Christ uh, told them to cast their nets on the right side. They spent a lot of time talking about the water. No, he is, that recording is focused upon his command and the result of it and the miracle that happened. Not upon the other little details that were not significant whatsoever. And so authenticity refers to the truth of the facts and content of the documents of the Bible. You could say authenticity deals with the integrity or, or trustworthiness and credibility of the record. Next, we want to think about from God to us, how the Bible, how the messages we have today, the books about what we have today, came from God and reached to, reached to us. And this is kind of what we call a link after link after link coming from God being recorded for us still today. And we think about this, we want to consider the idea of deity, the existence of God who desires to communicate himself to man. God wants to be able to communicate from himself to us. He wants us to have his word, to have his commands, and to know his will, and we have that through his word. If we have books that are brought up in question, because we have those today who have these other books that are out there, and I say other books, they're not books of the Bible, we want you to consider with their content. Well, friends, we should take proper steps to show, as we look at those things, that this is not what we should be following or listening to. We think about those Apostles. God identified and directed a group of men known as prophets and apostles to speak authoritatively for him. Again, we have those who want to talk about a new revelation of Jesus Christ or another revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, the Mormon leader, uh, Joseph Smith, I may be wrong, uh, who, who believed, I was right, thank you, uh, who tried to bring out another book because he believed he received a revelation from, Christ, uh, from God and that he, he was going to bring out those things in this new book. Well, if you look at that, it stands completely in contrast to so much Bible teaching. He was not and is not a prophet or an apostle. If we think about the canonicity as we talked about last week. This answers the question, which are the inspired prophetic and apostolic books and how are they known? We talked about that uh, last week. And we're, not, we're looking more at how those things reach to us today, not uh, the canonicity uh, this time. The authority. The teaching of men who, are, who were divinely inspired for the purpose of communicating divinely authoritative teaching. We think about who it was who spoke those things. You look at the Old Testament, it was the prophets of God, various messengers of God who God spoke to them and is recorded for us today, they did not not speak on behalf of God in the sense that that they went out and said, well, this is what God really wants you to do, without God speaking to them. They moved, as as Peter tells us, they they were moved by, by the Holy Spirit. Holy men of God were moved by the Holy Spirit to do what? To speak where God had spoken through them and not on their own authority, you think about in the New Testament, for example, the Apostle Paul. He, he, with, he when he was talking about various things uh, to, to those in Corinth, he would sometimes go from the commandments of God to his opinion, and he would say, "You'll find that phrase, not 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 God or not the Lord, but I say," emphasizing the, that, "Look, this is what I'm telling you," and it was advice, so to speak, but it wasn't. From God, And he was very clear to specify that as well. And of course, his, when he says that, he never says anything that is in contradiction to God's word. And we think about authenticity. Whatever is spoken by God must be true because God is the standard. Hebrews chapter uh, 6 uh, verse 18 tells us that God is the standard of the truth itself. It were, he mentions those two covenants and how he cannot lie. It's impossible for God to lie. It is impossible for God to lie. If God cannot lie, then we know that His Word is true, that His commandments are truth, and we should be those who adhere to them. Another thing for us to consider, when we think about those words that are passed down to us today in the book we know as the Bible, we think about integrity. This is the historic evidence that links authenticity and credibility. Anything authentic and true is credible. Anything authentic And true is credible now this is where those additional revelations get into trouble because they're not authentic they're not true many times their teachings go right against the Bible and so therefore they're not credible but you think and how can we say that well what did Peter say when it came to the scriptures he tells us that God has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness so when someone stands up and is so bold to say, well, we have another revelation from Jesus Christ or from God, they are wrong, according to Peter. A man who we know, without a fact, was an inspired man of God. And when he tells us we have all that God wants us to know and all that we need, that excludes anything else. When Paul wrote to Timothy and tells us that all scriptures, given by inspiration of God is proper for for doctrine of proof, for correction, for instruction and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That tells us that anything else will not help us to be equipped and perfectly perfected and ready for the truth and for obedience to the gospel like God's word. We need nothing else. Anything that is authentic and true is credible. But it has to be authentic and it has to be true. And our last point here on this, looking at from God to us, we think about credibility. It's based on the uh, authenticity of the text. Is it authentic? Again, we bring this up time and time again because there are so many non-inspired books that are out there today. We have some of those who talk about the Apocrypha and various books are included within that. Well, friends, there's a reason why it's not in our Bibles. There's a reason they're not reading from the book of Enoch or the book of Mary because they they are not authentic. They're not inspired of God. Therefore, they're not credible. Therefore, we shouldn't listen to what what they contain within them. We want to make sure that when we open up our Bibles that we are, that we remember that we have all that God wants us to have. Because there are so many out there who want you to read their books, read their creed books, read their doctrines, their manuals. They go right against what the Bible teaches. Those things are not inspired. You think about that for a second. All those denominations who are following their creed books and things they have created over the years have been passed down They're passing those things off as if they are acceptable and should be followed even though they contradict completely the Word of God. They are false teaching and they have no, they should have no bearing on what we follow today. Some lessons for us this this evening. Lessons from the languages, and I've mentioned this already once because I got ahead of myself here, but the most common languages used in the Bible reveal God took care that His Word be preserved. The Bible, as I mentioned this morning, is probably one of the most hated, if not the most hated book in the entire world. Simply put, because when you tell mankind that they are living in sin and will lose their eternal soul, surprisingly, they do not like it. Even when you show them genuinely and authentically how to solve that problem, how to have heaven as your home, is not always uh, widely popular or accepted. As I mentioned before, the Koine Greek, which is a language of the New Testament, is a dead language. This means the language does not change, therefore what was recorded in the language then still means the same today. There are no changes. The definitions of words and the meaning of phrases have stayed the same. Thus, we have the same words recorded then and available to us today. I have a book in my office. I know some others here have these as well. Uh, where we have, you open it up much like you would your, your standard Bible, so to speak. And you have, in this section, the Bible written in Greek. Point in Greek. And now to the side, you have it. Uh, translated into word-for-word translation, so you can see the Greek and you can see the English translation of it. Why is that important? Because we can see that old language from all those years ago and see those same Bible terms being defined, which reminds us that we still have God's Word today. Thousands of years later, we still have God's message for us today. We can still read it, listen to it, obey it, apply it, and have heaven as our home as a result of that. Lessons from the transmission process. God's word that we have recorded for us today stands up to the test of genuineness and being authentic. Authenticity. It stands up to all those tests. and again, there are books out there that describe various things that people do to, to test and make sure a writing is authentic. Going back, looking at the sacred writings and, and the copies of it and where it was found and all those types of things and comparing it to other findings of that same writing and seeing that what it is authentic and going through various steps and we find over and over again that we have God's Word today. It stands up to the test that we can check and look to see that we have God's Word. And since it stands up to such tests, the Word we have today can be trusted. And don't misunderstand me. When I say we have God's Word today, it can be trusted. There are still translations, not transmissions, but translations of God's Word that take too much liberty in their translation of it. Because we have to remember that when we look at our Bibles, these two are translated by men from Hebrew or Aramaic or from Greek into English by a man. So when we look at a section of Scripture and we say, well, I'm not sure if that's worded correctly. We can open up, we can go, we can research that, we can find a meaning of those words, go back to that language, we can find out this is a more accurate reading of that. That's why we have various translations out there. Some are more, much more reliable than others. If you look at the front of our bulletin, and this wasn't going to be the next lesson, but I'm not going to really do that, but if you look at the front of our bulletin, there's a section that says we use the King James, New King James, American Standard. Do you know why that is? Because they are at least some of the top, most, Reliable, not popular, but reliable translations that are available, and they too have areas that can can be improved upon. But vastly, they are the most reliable translations that are out there. That's why that is there, because when we stand up and preach and teach, we want to make sure we have one of the most reliable translations in front of us today, and we can know that by doing even just some little research as well. God's Word is not a myth or a collection of stories passed down through the ages. I listened to one podcaster who was interviewing an individual and he said, the Bible is just a book of myths and stories that were passed down. No, it's not. You're talking about Shakespeare. You're confused. What's interesting is the Bible has more re- more sections of it recorded throughout history and found throughout history than any other book. You compare it to Shakespeare, you compare it to others, the Bible has more ancient recordings and manuscripts than Shakespeare. He is quoted many times without hesitation. The Bible is far more reliable. And of course we know Shakespeare doesn't help anyone get to heaven. God's word withstands all scrutiny and passes all tests. The same cannot be said for the others of man. Only God's Word can be trusted and be used as man's standard for living. Only God's Word can be trusted. We think about these things this evening. We think about the transmission of the Bible. We think about the inspiration of the Bible, the canonicity of the Bible, like we talked about last week, and now the transmission of the Bible. We find that we have God's Word that was intended for us today. And since we have it, and we have it very much readily available, let's make sure we do the proper thing and make sure we study upon it, learn from it, apply it to our own lives so we can be better followers of God each and every day. This evening, as you think about these things, we can help you or encourage you in any way. You can come forward now, let's go stand and sing the song that's been selected.